Now I invite you to join us in the hearing of our scripture lesson from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 4 and 8 through 11. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants shall be known among the nations, and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are a people whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we've been talking the past two weeks about, uh, about what it means to be God's people. And this is kind of the series that we're in right now. Each uh, sermon ends with the line, your people. We began with, come for your people. And then last week, comfort your people. Today, save your people. But who are God's people? There's a, there's a fine line that um, preachers are allowed to walk between telling the truth and making people happy. Because oftentimes the truth, if I were to walk over to this side, starts to rub people the wrong way. And they say, hold on now, preacher. Can't you give us a feel-good sermon every once in a while? And so you walk over to this side and you get into that feel-good sermon and then... God is like, hold on now, preacher. This isn't what the people need to hear. So we walk a, fi a fine line between, uh, between truth and helping people feel good, making people happy. Uh, today, I'm going to lean a little bit uh, to this side. <laughs> you, might be, you might have uh, found a little familiarity with our scripture lesson today in Isaiah 61. The Lord has appointed me. These words come from Jesus. Uh, well, actually, they come from Isaiah. Jesus borrows them later on in Luke. 
Um, also in Mark and Matthew, Luke's the one I'm more familiar with. Luke chapter 4, verse 16, starting in verse 16 through 20-ish, uh, Jesus goes to the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And, being, yeah, I guess this was his custom, he's one person who is allowed to teach in the synagogue. And so he goes to teach, and they hand him the scroll, and he sits down. Uh, that's the Jewish tradition, to sit down while, while uh, the rabbi teaches. Imagine if, if United Methodist pastors were allowed to sit down. I wouldn't get anything done. You know I like to move. And, and he reads from Isaiah. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolls up the scroll and he says to the people, today, this passage has been fulfilled in your presence. And the people, you know, they, they know Jesus. They, they watch Jesus grow up, and they're like, ooh, very good, Jesus. Yes, yes, amen, Jesus. And then he goes on to say, what if you're not those people? And they say, hold on, wait, what? Jesus says, what if you're not the oppressed people we're talking about here? Jesus goes on to say, what if you are not the captives and the prisoners that the Lord is talking about here? What if you are not these people? And I said, hold on, Jesus. You're going the wrong direction. You're going too much into the truth. We were, we were ready to give you a, a hand clap. Instead, Jesus prompts them to consider perhaps you are the reason why the Lord has a, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has appointed me to proclaim all of these things. I say, oh, hold on, what? Jesus says, don't you realize, and I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, uh, don't you realize that you're contributing to a larger system that is causing people to be oppressed, that is leading people into captivity, that is bringing down suffering on the lesser? those whom you have considered less than yourselves, in fact. What if you are not the people of God that we're talking about today? And, and, and the people say, that's it! And you know what they do? This is the most like, dramatic thing any church or synagogue could do. I, I, I feel like I'm very fortunate uh, that we're on uh, flat ground here, um, that there aren't any mountains in the area because the people in the synagogue take Jesus and they take him up to a mountain to throw him off the mountain. It's a bit dramatic, people of Nazareth, but they get this upset about it. They get this upset about Jesus saying, what if you're not the people we're talking about today? And so I'm going to propose the same question to you and knowing that there aren't any cliffs in your sight, I do pray you don't take me to the bay, but what if you're not the people that Jesus or Isaiah is talking about today? What if I'm not that person? You see, God has always, and I do mean always have, had, have, continues to have, a preferential option for the poor. And whenever I say the poor, I mean the financially poor, the people who are oppressed, the people who are captive, the people who are considered less than in the system in which we operate. God has always had a preferential option for the poor. 
don't believe me, look at what Jesus goes on to do after he's about to be thrown off of a mountain. He goes and he rounds up his disciples and they go to whom? The poor. They go to the weak, the suffering, the people who are hurting, the people who have nothing, the people whom the system has quite literally thrown out of the city. Yes, to the people who are left on the outskirts of the city begging for their lives, the people who have nothing because the rest of the people won't take care of them. God and God through Jesus have always had this preferential option for the poor. And now, I, I won't be so bold to say that you may not be that person. Perhaps you are. Perhaps you are one of these individuals. But I wager to say that not all of us are. And so, we get into this conversation about being saved. This is a, this is a, um, a buzzword in the church. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of gone out of fashion, but um, 80s up through the early 2000s, you get that question a lot. Are you saved? Do you want to be saved? Do you know what it means to be saved? Let me start with that question. What does it mean to be saved? And this is the annoying part of the sermon where the preacher's going to ask the congregation to give me a little feedback. What does it mean to be saved? Any answers? Everlasting life in heaven? Okay, yes, excellent. Other thoughts? What is it? Cleansed of your sins, absolutely, yes. Saved from the other alternative. I imagine that's the alternative to the heaven, yes. John Ralph, do you have a hand up? Yeah. Saved from other people? I hear you, absolutely, sure. What, what else have we got? What does it mean to be saved? This is one of those grand questions that, um, that we don't wrestle with very often because we like the part where we just say we're saved and we move on, right? And we go, back, go about our business and we live comfortable lives or at least as comfortable as we can make it for ourselves. To be saved. Yes, um, yeah, n nobody here is wrong. Um, to be saved uh, is a process of transformation. In the United Methodist Church, we, uh, we talk about salvation through the lens of grace, uh, and we'll talk more about why the word grace, but we have uh, three different movements of grace uh, that we acknowledge. The first is prevenient grace, or grace that comes before, the grace of God that starts acting before we are even aware, that stirs within our hearts and prompts us to say, I'm missing something. I need something else in my life. Where is it? Then we have justifying grace, which is what others' denominations might call salvation. It is that grace which justifies us in the eyes of God, uh, um, makes right our path, uh, that grace which calls us into something greater than ourselves. And then the third grace is, and, and yeah, did you know that? There's something after salvation, the third grace is sanctifying grace. Uh, sanctifying grace is the grace which makes us holy and holier and holier and holier in this very life, that kind of grace. Yes, salvation is not the end of the Christian journey. We still have a ways to go after that. And so 
when we talk about salvation, we need to talk about transformation, to, to, to be able to start anew. And so we want to consider that within the frame of Isaiah now. So we've been talking through Isaiah for the past three weeks, and we've kind of been jumping back, back and forth. We're closer to the end of Isaiah. This is chapter 61. There are only 66 chapters in Isaiah. Um, Isaiah tells the story about one of the most crucial moments in the, in the entire faith of, of uh, the Jewish people. It begins with a warning. Destruction is coming for you all. And sure enough, the northern kingdom of Israel gets destroyed by Assyria. The southern kingdom of Judah gets destroyed by Babylon. And the people of Israel are cast into exile. Why are they cast into exile? Can you recall, if you've, if you've read through Isaiah, if you've read through um, um, you know, just about any <laughs> um, book in the Old Testament, especially the prophets, it's because they are cast into exile because... This is the, exp the explanation that God gives. Because you have not been treating your people right. Because you have failed to care for the least of these. That's the reason why you're about to be destroyed. And, and they are given this, this is part of Isaiah's warning. Because you have not turned from your wicked ways. Because you have failed to be an obedient people because you are not there for the poor, for the oppressed, for the captives, for those who mourn. This is the outcome. And so they go into exile. The second part of Isaiah, uh, which is like uh, chapters 40 to 60, something like that. Uh, the second part of Isaiah then goes into the people in exile, and the people are mourning. They're saying, why, God, why have you done this to us? And Isaiah's like, don't you remember? You know exactly why this has happened to you all. Stop forgetting. But then there's this message of hope in 2 Isaiah that, that tells them, don't worry. God's not finished with you. God's not throwing you away. God's giving you an opportunity. What is that opportunity? It comes in, in 3 Isaiah, uh, that the people then are allowed to return home. The Persian Empire conquers the Babylonian Empire, and the Persian king Cyrus says, we have no need for Jewish slaves. Go on, shoo, get back to your homeland. Um, you're still going to pay us money, but go back. You're, you're free to go back. Uh, and they're like, wow, wonderful. They even call King Cyrus, the Persian king, a messiah, the anointed one, because he is the one who allowed them to return home, what they've been waiting for. And what do they find when they return home? Utter destruction. The temple in which they uh, once worshipped uh, has been torn to the ground. Everything that uh, the, the older generation could remember is no longer standing. What do they have here except an opportunity to start anew? An opportunity to live as a transformed people. An opportunity to recognize that their exile and everything they've been through has been to bring them back to this point of recognition that, hey, as we start anew, we may want to consider caring for the poor, caring for the oppressed, caring for the prisoners and the captives. We may want to start thinking about them. And Isaiah 61 picks up after they have already returned back into their homeland and started up life again, and they're trying to rebuild. And guess what third Isaiah witnesses? The people 
are doing the exact same thing that they started doing. They're back to oppressing one another. They're back to relentlessly treating each other as wholly different. All of a sudden, social stratification appears in their society. Social stratification, there's, there's a, a lower class, a middle class, and an upper class. It just shows up. And it's like, all of a sudden, the people have forgotten that they're supposed to be caring for each other. That's what the exile was all about. Can't you get it together, people? And so Isaiah comes to the people and says, the Spirit of the Lord has, is upon me and has appointed me to proclaim good news to the oppressed, liberty to the captives, release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Salvation ends up implying something wholly unique. In a transformed life, we are called to participate in the act of caring for one another. It would seem that in, uh, especially once it gets to Jesus's day, but also through, throughout the entire Old Testament, that salvation, whenever we're talking about the word salvation and what that means, it's not salvation from sin. That's, that's, yes, but that's not the terminology they use. They use salvation from being oppressed, salvation from poverty, salvation from uh, all of what we might call earthly problems, the things that show up in life that are really difficult for us to get through because of some, uh, some systemic error or, 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 or mistreatment or something like that. Jesus starts referring to that as sin as fractured or distorted relationships between people and between the people and God. If you want to have a conversation about what sin actually is, I would love to talk about it, but we don't have the time now. Just know that we're talking about relationships. And Jesus gets on the scene and says, your sin is that you have stopped caring for one another. Or really, that you never really did care for one another very well. I'm calling you into salvation, into a transformed life in which you do take this up. In which you do live as transformed people to care about one another through all of the hardship and hurt that life has to offer. This message from Isaiah, the one that Jesus picks up on, calls us to recognize that saved people save people. Adopt this expression from the one, hurt people hurt people. You may have heard that before. Uh, the people who hurt others are often hurt themselves. This is a classic um, understanding of bullying in, uh, in schools. Hurt people hurt people. Saved people save people. And I don't mean that saved people save people from their sins, but that saved people save one another from the anguish that might appear in life. Our salvation is not one to simply sit back and wait for somebody else to come along and fix the problems once we've gotten our, pardon my language, get out of hell free card. It's not what salvation is. It's not just this ticket that says, okay, don't have to go to the other place. Get to go to the good place. And that's sufficient. No. 
Our salvation is one that calls us to take an active part in remedying the brokenness of our world. Jesus, when he starts preaching about Isaiah 61, says, you might not be the people that this passage is referring to. Maybe you are. Maybe there are some of you who are these people. But by and large, even if you are, you are called to take an active role in the healing of our society. If salvation is about transformation, then we must ask the question, what are we transformed for? That's improper grammar. For what are we transformed? What purpose? Why? Why do we need to be transformed? It, it, is, so that it, it is so that we can live into a wholly different life. And I'm not just talking about a life in which we're better at following the rules that the Bible has laid out for us. That's really cute. But that's not salvation. The rules, the rules that the Bible has to offer are not our end-all, be-all. I go so far often to say that the Bible is not a rule book. It is a book of human possibility, the potential of human society and individualization existing in the world. Transformation is about us being moved into a new kind of love, into a new kind of joy, into a new kind of peace, into a new kind of hope, such that we can get to work transforming the world so that it might look more like the kingdom of God. That's what Isaiah is calling us to. That's what Jesus ends up calling the people to, and the people don't like it. The people want to take Jesus and throw him off a cliff for it because it means that they might have been in the wrong. I'm going to challenge us here for just a moment and say we might all be a little bit in the wrong because I would wager to guess that we aren't all exerting the most of our existence for the healing of our society. Maybe, maybe some of us are, and that's beautiful. I'm not. I'm going to be real honest. This is my confession. I'm really bad at it. I'm a really bad Christian and preacher. Um, but this is what our transformation, I'm not making an excuse for myself, this is what our, our salvation calls us to. This is what uh, the, the movement of Isaiah is calling the people to recognize is that it's about more than what we have allowed it to be about so far. That this is about the oppressed. That this is about the brokenhearted. That this is about the captives. This is about the prisoners. By the way, that word prisoners, it's not a metaphor. That's actually referring to people whom are in prison. Did you know our prison system is overflowing these days? making people uncomfortable. This is about those who mourn. God is calling us to take an active role this Christmas season in something more than just a feel-good, fuzzy, warm feeling. Because that's what's familiar, and that's, you know, we get a little nostalgia around this time of year, and we like that cozy, warm feeling. God is calling us in an Advent season to take an active role in transforming our world to look more like the kingdom of God. So my challenge for us today, 
My challenge for us today is simply to take up Isaiah's call. Be the people who bring good news to the oppressed. Be the people who bind up the brokenhearted. Be the people who proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners. Be the people who comfort all who mourn. Be the people who proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Be the people who seek to bring joy into the lives of all. The joy of Christ. The joy that transforms. The joy that recognizes we wouldn't want a single person to suffer, but rather to have all unite with us in this joy. And let us pray together.